the main crisis point was uh, 2007, 2008, 2009. Probably the start of the current cycle was around 2011, 2012. You're always looking for the low in the land market. It's not something that's measured particularly well, so it, you've got to kind of do a bit of uh, detective work. But around that point, uh, there's never any one day when the cycle starts. So four years, sorry, four years, seven years are on from that. 2018, 2019, we were looking for some kind of mid-cycle slowdown. We were certainly getting the inversion of the yield curve, PMI data slowing down and other things. Um, COVID came and exacerbated some of the problems that we were already starting to experience in 2020. We had actually what ended up being, because of the huge stimulus that was applied, um, the shortest recession in US history and UK history. Akil Patel is the director of Property Share Market Economics, an investment research service that teaches subscribers how to remember the future based upon leading knowledge of economic and financial cycles. Akil became interested in such cycles after his family business went through a difficult period during the major recessions in the early 1990s and in 2008. He refused to accept the conventional wisdom that these events could not be forecasted in advance. After studying, he decided to develop a body of work that would help people, whether they were business owners, investors, or those just interested in doing something with their savings. With professional experience in the UK, civil servants service, and international development, Akil has worked on a range of issues from reviewing large infrastructure deals to helping establish the UK's $3 billion International Climate Fund. He has two master's degrees, one in finance and public policy, and a first degree in classics from Oxford University. His new book, The Secret Wealth Advantage, reveals the underlying economic cycles that have been consistent for centuries and predicts when the next downturn will occur and how to ignore the mainstream media to make better decisions in the future. Join Lewis and I as we speak with Akil about economic booms and busts and financial indicators for the rest of time. Welcome to What I See, the podcast where we uncover the stories of visionaries, innovators, and entrepreneurs. Join us as we explore the big ideas and challenges shaping our future. And now our hosts, Mark O'Donnell and Lewis Schiff. Hello, Mark. How are you, my friend? I am doing fantastically well, Lewis. Uh, how about yourself? Well, I'm making a commitment and a promise to you and to all of our watchers, mostly our watchers than our listeners, is that I haven't had my hair cut in two or three months. So I promise to all of you that this will be fixed by this weekend. Well, I actually think you should keep it exactly like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it draws attention to you. I mean, so it, and it would fit right, your, well, your personality. Well, I'm going to leave it like this for the duration of our recording so that well, it's memorialized. <laughs> yeah, I think you should. Now, Mark, we had an awesome time at Oxford uh, in early August at the Moonshots and Moneymakers Conference. I'm so glad that you came to join us. Um, and it looks at innovation from a lot of different angles. At some point when you're looking at innovation, you have to look at the macro, at the world and how the world manages innovation and opportunity and progress and research. Um, and we had a speaker there, and at the end of his talk, his name is Akil Patel, and he's going to join us in a minute. At the end of his talk, I was really delighted that you told me that that, had, that was a great presentation, that you'd really gotten a lot out of it. Mm -hmm. So when we talked about uh, guests for our podcasts, 
and we we came up with his name pretty fast. Yeah, I'm I'm super excited about the conversation because as visionary entrepreneurs, you really while I used to have a saying that there's no recession for the capable. Uh and that's a little insulting in in a lot of ways, but at the same time it's it's somewhat true and somewhat not, right? There's some forces that you know, it doesn't matter uh who you are, how capable you are, you just can't overcome them. And so obviously macroeconomics has a, a big play to that and the globalization uh, effects of, you know, the people would say that if the U.S. sneezes, China catches a cold or some something to that effect. So I think it's really important for our listeners, for entrepreneurs to really understand how the economy works and how to get, you know, if you're going to be hundred percent accurate, but how to prepare for the rainy day, how to prepare for and take advantage of when it's raining to propel your business forward when times are really good. So I'm super excited. Well, there's a, before we bring Akil on, there's a, uh, you know, a, kind of an automatic legalese line that gets put on all uh, investing data that said past performance is no indicator of future results. That's both true to some extent, and also you can tell it just has to be there because a compliance person said it has to be there. Right. Do you believe that the past can tell us about the future? In terms I do. of, especially in terms of uh, economic data, demographic data, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Not so much intangible history, but just does date. Can you dictate the, the future through the past when it comes to economic data, demographic data? I think partially, and, and here's why I say that, because I, I think the underlying component of economics is human biology. And we really have not changed very much from saber-tooth tiger days to now. And so, and, and I hope we get into this conversation where it's possible that personality does not scale, but biology does. And we can look at those events from the historical past, understanding that it's really all driven by how we are all hardwired. And, and so, but what is the evidence of that and how does it ebb and flow? And so for those reasons, I do think you can have some reasonable uh, estimation of what the future holds based on how we've behaved in the past. Well, let's find out. We're going to bring on Akhil and we'll see what he thinks about that and see where he comes yeah. on all that. Now, Akhil Patel, Akhil's uh, got a day job, which is he's the uh, he's, he's a director of the property share market economics firm. It's an investment firm that that teaches subscribers how to remember the future based on leading knowledge of economic and financial cycles. So essentially, it's how to use the past to envision the future. And what's interesting about Akhil is that he became interested in, in looking backwards when his family went through a very difficult time during some of the major recessions of the 90s and, and the mid-2000s. He was a student at Oxford University, which is where we were delighted to host him as a speaker for Moonshots and Moneymakers, but he'd actually been a student there years earlier in the classics. Um, and he has developed a body of work which emerged in a book just earlier this year. It's hot off the presses, July 2023, called The Secret Wealth Advantage. Akhil Patel, would you please join us here at What I See? There we are. Great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. 
Um, so Akil, uh, again, you just, just from your, the brief of your bio and with the lead in with Mark and I, you are a person who studies the past in order to uh, potentially predict the future. But generally speaking, what is your take on, you know, as a practitioner of that, what is your take on how well that works? Well, I, as you said, I started looking into these things uh, in 2009 when my family's business was going through some difficult times. And I was, I was a bit sort of alarmed that we'd been so badly prepared and no one, you know, in the mainstream media was really kind of advising us otherwise. Um, and so I've seen, you know, having done some research and come across these economic cycles and, uh, and sort of seen how they play out in the past, I've sort of followed it since then. And, you know, it, it does depend on whether you're sort of reviewing these kind of surface events, you know, what are interest rates doing today? What is, what are, what are, you know, demographic issues? Where are people moving? If you, if you'll get sort of tied up with those, you might think that this era is very different. But if you look at the underlying forces, actually having sort of followed these things for over a decade, I can say that they're actually, they're well on track. History's repeating in a sense. Uh, and you can use that knowledge of the past to, get a, I think, fairly clear idea of where things are moving. Mm -hmm. And what is the, what is your answer to the, this time is different question that I'm sure you get every time? This time is different because back then this wasn't true. Back then the computer microchip, back then China, back then climate, you know, all that stuff. I, I think fundamentally, you know, when you're an entrepreneur or an investor, when you boil it down, you're making the same decision. You're making decisions about when you're going to invest, when you're going to hold back, you know, how are you going to finance it? When are you going to exit? I mean, it, you might, it might be talking about buying agricultural um, tools or you might be talking about buying, you know, a high-end quantum computer. Uh, but these decisions are fundamentally the same and they're influenced by an economic context. Uh, and that economic context is either the economy is growing and moving forwards and people are spending or they're doing the opposite. You're able to obtain finance or you're not. And when you boil it down to those simple terms, uh, I think you you can see that actually it's not different. They're the same decisions. I suppose my contention is that the environment plays out in ebbs and flows in regular cycles, and you can use that kind of information to inform the decisions that you make, whichever cycle you're in. So, Akil, what and, and I, I read your, your book, The, the Secret Wealth Advantage, just absolutely fantastic. Read it cover to cover in, in a few hours. Uh, and it's not small, but it's really good. So I kept going. Um, so I appreciate the, the work that you put into that. And so as I was reading that, and if you could explain to us, too, sort of the, the overall hypothesis of what the cycle is, because I think it would be really clarifying for people. But as I was reading that, it almost seems like an invisible force is propelling this thing over and over again, sort of like the, uh, you know, the ocean tides. It pretty predictable, comes in, comes out, and not much you can do disrupts it. I mean, I remember when I was a little kid, I'd go out to the ocean and be like, I'm going to stop these waves. Uh, like you just, <laughs> it's just, of course, not possible. Uh, but you just think, you know, your ego says that you can do this. And of course, it's ridiculous. And that's kind of what the way I felt reading the book. Like there's these titles that are just happening and you can't stop it. So if you could take us through sort of what the, your hypothesis has been in the book and uh, give us a little overview. 
Sure. Okay. Well, so let's go over the basic cycle. So the argument in the book, and, and I'm not the person who discovered this, by the way, I should make that clear, um, is that there's an 18 year on average, but there's actually very little variation to that uh, economic cycle that takes you from one sort of major kind of peak to the next one. And typically you get um, 14 years of generally expansive activity. Um, it, you can argue that that 14-year period is also in itself two seven-year halves and the mid-cycle recession in the middle. Uh, and then you, things have gone way over the top by the end of the 14-year period, uh, and people have gone all of the lessons of the previous cycle by that point, uh, and you get a major crisis crash um, and a process that typically takes about four years to work out because the banking system is down, there's a lot of toxic loans, there's a lot of leverage, people have to deleverage, have to bail out the banks, economies in a deep recession, people aren't spending, all the things that we um, kind of associate with a period after 2008 uh, in particular in the, in the last cycle. So it's an 18 year, 18 year overall cycle. And I think, Lewis, when you were introducing me, you said that uh, my family's business had had problems in the early 90s, which is exactly right. And this was what really cottoned me on to the fact that there might be this sort of rhythm lasting uh, 18 years or so, because in 2008, the business was going through problems and we'd had problems in the early 90s. Now, I was only a teenager then, but I remember it was difficult. We'd had to cut back spending. We couldn't go on holiday uh, and so on. Um, and both of those episodes had been preceded by a major uh, boom in the property market. People in, in the late 80s were really spending a lot of money and there was a lot of optimism around. Uh, and then in the early 90s, there was a very significant uh, recession. Some banks had to be bailed out uh, and so on. And I was asking myself in 2008, well, why are people not putting these two episodes together? Because they clearly have many uh, similarities. And that's what sort of led me to look for this sort of rhythm, which I eventually discovered had been identified by an American, American economist in the 30s uh, and had sort of found that in US history, it had been going on since 1800. Um, now, to your point about the tides, um, I, you know, I think it's a great analogy, actually. And you, it kind of sounds a bit uh, flippant to say that, you know, you have many, um, you know, particularly mainstream, you know, Ivy League or Oxford educated economists, um, you know, saying that these things don't work. But and to, to my mind, it actually does feel like they're modern King Canutes, you know, the Anglo-Saxon king who who said he can he can stop the tide. It, I, I do feel it's actually a bit like that. And they, you know, not everyone understands how the tides work. Uh, and, um, you know, it's I think this is probably a valid analogy in relation to the economic cycle. And the reason for that is that um, people don't understand particularly well how fundamental the rhythm of the real estate, but actually the land market is to the pace and intensity of economic activity. I mean, everyone in an economy needs a place to work and needs a place to live. So it's a fundamental factor of production. A lot of the banking system creates money, creates loans for people to acquire a piece of real estate, acquire a piece of land, a, a location. Um, it's it. Whenever you invest in infrastructure and, and so on, ultimately land prices go up in value. And, you know, people who actually own land already make very significant windfall gains. Uh, the banking system is healthy when the land market is healthy. And conversely, when 
speculation has gone way over the top uh, and, and, and prices start to come down again, uh, it brings down the banking system. Of course, if the banking system is down, businesses don't have credit, uh, people stop buying, there's mass layoffs and unemployment uh, and so on. So we're all kind of tied uh, to this uh, fundamental force, uh, and yet it's not particularly well understood for reasons that I set out in the book. Yeah, and it, it is obviously a pretty complicated thing, but but it's been going on for thousands of years, as long as there's been the concept of property. And I have to think, and I, and I mentioned sort of in the introduction about sort of human biology yeah. and saying, well, we are all hardwired for you know, this scarcity style hardwiring that we want to accumulate as much property we can for our own survival. And I'm just curious about your take on that sort of relating it to biology. Hmm. What are the underlying mindsets? And maybe that's it. Maybe it's just, hey, we're hardwired for scarcity and we just accumulate things. And if we're better at accumulating things, we get more. And if we're not very good at it, we get less. <laughs> um, what are your thoughts around from that perspective? Because it's been going around for thousands of years. Yeah, I mean, look, you're, you're sort of linking it with biology, I think is excellent. So it's not something I really touch on in the book, but uh, put it this way. It's not so much the mindset that, you know, we're all greedy and, you know, if, if something's available, we'll take it. Um, I think it's more than that. You know, we have needs, biological needs for food, for shelter, for warmth, for clothing, and so on. I mean, fundamental, everyone requires pretty much the same thing. Uh, and to get those, we have, you know, essentially two choices. We could all be doing that ourselves. So I could, you know, go out, I could be trying to make some clothes, I could be chopping down some wood to make a fire and do some cooking and hunting and, and so on. Or we could come together and we could cooperate. So I'll make the clothes, you go and hunt the, the food or, or grow the crops. Lewis will, will brew the beer, um, and so on. And we need to be in the same place to be able to do that cooperation effectively so that we can all meet our needs efficiently. It's a fundamental biological need. And I suppose the genius of the human species is that we've realized that by doing dividing our labor and exchanging the product of it, um, it works much better. But the thing is, we all need to be in the same location. And then that gives particular pieces of land a high locational value. And that's fundamentally what the land market is about. Land is, you know, effectively it's unlimited. There's plenty of land for even 9 billion people, but locations are relatively scarce in the, in the you know, biggest cities, the biggest towns where there's the biggest markets, where it's most efficient to, to divide your labor. Uh, and that's what's fundamentally um, driving our economies, but then also the cycles that we get. Yeah, and, and that's all super fascinating to me because with the high volume of, of traffic, obviously those locations become more valuable. And I have to think too that the availability of fresh water, the way that land is arable or not, um, really has a lot to dictate uh, on that popularity, Absolutely. especially yeah. going back uh, a long time. So the, the next question I have for you um, is, is really around demographics and kind of thinking about, okay, so maybe it's a biological driven uh, force like the, the tides that just keeps going over and over again. It, it seems to be uh, that way. And just so I have this totally crystal clear and so everyone hears it, 
is we've got seven years, seven good years. We have a midterm recession. Maybe it lasts six months, two years, maybe. And then we have a boom period of another seven years, give or take, where we have this total mania. People are buying up everything they possibly can. And then we have that crash. It takes about four years to recover, give or take, rinse and repeat for the next 3,000 years or forever. <laughs> as long as we're a ball, you know, careening through space, this is going to happen, right? <laughs> um, so I, I have that right? Yep, yep. Most Generally. <laughs> um, and and, and by the, so... By the way, this is the, this is the moment when everyone wants to know, well, where are we in that 18-year cycle as we speak? Yes, and I, and I do want to know that. Let's go there first, and then I have other questions after that. <laughs> okay, so... So the, the the main crisis point was uh, 2007, 2008, 2009. Um, probably the start of the current cycle was around 2011, 2012. You're always looking for the low in the land market. It's not something that's measured particularly well, so it, you've got to kind of do a bit of uh, detective work. But around that point, uh, there's never any one day when the cycle stops. So four years, sorry, four years, seven years on from that, 2018, 2019, we were looking for some kind of mid-cycle slowdown. We were certainly getting the inversion of the yield curve, PMI data slowing down and other things. Um, COVID came and exacerbated some of the problems that we were already starting to experience in 2020. We had actually what ended up being, because of the huge stimulus that was applied, um, the shortest recession in US history and UK history. Um, that was the mid-cycle recession. Uh, and then you would expect another six to seven years up uh, from that point. Uh, it doesn't mean up in a straight line. Um, and uh, so we are sort of halfway through that period with a forecast peak uh, sort of in the second half of the decade sometime. I've put in the book 2026 or after 2026 will be the point of the next crisis. So in some ways, the most mad, intense, manic period of the cycle is still to come. And I think what's quite interesting, just because I know that some people will say, well, what about all this sort of recession talk and, and so on? Um, if you lined up, you know, the top economists in the world in, at the start of 2022 uh, and, and, and said to them, well, we're going to have a major land war in Europe with the sort of looming threat of nuclear conflict. Uh, we'd have this massive inflation, partly because of the, uh, the pandemic stimulus and economies being at full employment and, you know, close to full capacity uh, and kind of problems with getting food around and, and so on. If you then told them that the Federal Reserve would raise interest rates very quickly uh, and then you'd say that would have induced a significant problem in some banks um, and then ask them, right, so what are, what are we going to, what's the world going to look like in August 2023? They'd said, well, recession, very significant housing crisis, um, banking crisis, Maybe the dollar will collapse, you know, all this sort of stuff, right? I think this would have been fairly reasonable reaction to that litany of problems. And yet what was supposed to be a nailed on certain recession at the start of 2023 and then a banking crisis has not been that. So I think this sort of is indicative of where we are in the cycle. Um, actually, you know, construction is booming in a lot of places. Um, rents are going up. They eventually will return house prices uh, uh, to kind of growth again. In fact, in the US, I think house prices started rising again in, in uh, early 
in February maybe this year uh, and so on. And so um, you're actually starting to see a lot of the things that we had at the end of the last cycle. So uh, very low down payment requirements, new financial products where you can link your credit card to your home equity, um, longer term uh, loans, uh, etc. So the real estate market is basically working out how to get through these problems. And it's sort of starting to create uh, uh, this sort of quickening pace uh, that we saw at this point in the in the last cycle. And, you know, I think I mean, I really I really think this is the importance of having books like mine and others uh, for people to uh, to look back on because they're not well served by what they re read in the financial press. Um, yeah. So I think you had another question, which I've probably not answered. Yeah, I, I, I could probably ask you questions uh, for a lot longer than we have in terms of time. But, um, you know, when you think about I'm going to go with when you think about property in, in general um, and we talked about these high traffic areas, very desirable areas, that's where property is the most valuable, which obviously makes sense. And we're looking for the low in those property values. But we have lots of high traffic metro areas uh, across the world or high traffic cities and things like that are they all in coordination with one another through your your research is it always the dominant economy in there first um because we kind of know who that is over time yeah, are they coordinated or together how do we find that lowest point yeah it's, it's a really good question um so in the 19th century uh, when these cycles were taking place. And you can see them most clearly in the US and the UK because they've both been, well, it's only the UK in the 19th century, um, maybe not so much now, but the US in both centuries, and we ha they have not undergone the least sort of political change over that period. Uh, you can see that they had slightly opposite cycles. So when the US was in its major crisis, the UK was in its mid-cycle recession, uh, and they had their peaks at different times. After the Second World War, and I should add, by the way, that the only things that have really interrupted the cycle over this 220 years that it's, we've got sort of the history of it for the two world wars, the only two things that have interrupted it. They didn't eliminate the cycle, they interrupted it. After the Second World War, all Western economies reset around the same time, kind of mid to late 50s. And it now appears that we're on the same sort of pattern. The US being the dominant economy tends to lead. Um, I'm not really sure why it leads, but you know, it just seems to be the case. Um, as other countries developed and, and, and grew, you know, the Southern European periphery, Japan, uh, they joined this kind of rhythm, um, following the US by six months to, to a year. Um, I think you're, we saw in the last cycle, maybe some of the craziest, most speculative behavior was in the Middle East, um, kind of around Dubai. We're starting to see that sort of thing going on again. Um, and I suppose the big thing for this cycle, the big question mark is how does China fit in? So does China mm -hmm. have an 18 year cycle? Hypothesis is possibly it does because uh, the Chinese economy uh, and Chinese people like speculating in real estate just like the rest of us. Um, but on the other hand, it's not a clear capitalist economy. There's a lot of government intervention, as we've seen over the last uh, decade or so. Um, and, you know, so they allow things to go bad, but actually before they really collapse, they come in in, in a major way, in a, in a way that most Western governments can't do. So so we have some of these um, question marks. But as far as I can tell, it's 
getting increasingly synchronized uh, and pretty much all economies are involved um mm -hmm. so yeah that's that's kind of the my current feeling right yeah and and so we we read the news to your point uh with um a property real estate crisis in china and a recent bailout basically of that that property market we we hear of in the wall street journal here in the us uh, with commercial real estate and so your thinking is that's just all um that's all surface the tides are still coming in the only thing that can really disrupt the the tides is war and even that's sort of a splash <laughs> it didn't really stop it just sort of interrupted it a little bit um which takes me to my my next question is on demographics. Lewis and I were chatting about this a little bit, where the the birth rate, you know, China in my view, and is probably going to be uh, hilariously unpopular, but it, it's the world to me. It's the world's old, uh, largest nursing home. Um, I mean, the the birth rate is uh, so low; it has way more older people than than younger people, and um, you know, normally the demographic pyramid exists where there's fewer older people and there's a lot more younger people. Uh, the U.S. is sort of a column right now where the working age and it, so longevity, uh, working ages are, are changing. Will those underlying demographics be just a splash and interruption or could it interrupt the tide altogether? I don't think it interrupts it, but it certainly has an effect on how particular countries experience the rhythm, how, you know, whether they really get the speculation that the, the countries that have the biggest boom are usually ones that are growing in population as well as having a lot of surpluses because they're a big exporting powerhouse or they're, you know, digging up some kind of quality and selling it to the rest of the world, like, you know, Saudi Arabia or something. Um, so uh, I think, I think that, uh, you, you would find that you might have more localized kind of boom. You might be in certain cities, but not in others because people are moving out of those cities and, you know, there's not the sort of increasing population to, um, to kind of uh, keep activity going in those places where they're moving out of. So I think you get so that, some that volume, the traffic that makes a piece of property valuable starts to die down. And so it maybe just shifts well, another place, you know, ultimately, I mean, it might mean that some locations lose their value because industries and people are moving out of them. But, you know, ultimately, they'll be moving to the places where there are jobs. And in those places, there will be inward migration and a shortage of housing and, and so on. And, you know, I mean, one of the perversities of our system is that you can own a piece of real estate in a good location, do nothing with it, and it still increases in value. Um, and, and the problem is that quite a lot of that goes on whether by choice or just happens to be that you because your your the value of your real estate is 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 stable that you don't need to do something with it and that creates a shortage of housing in and and and, and space for businesses uh, and so the ones that are on the market are therefore you know to a certain extent artificially inflated in value terms um so that somewhat somewhat offsets some of the demographic issues i think um, and a good example of um, another country that's having some demographic problems is Germany. Mm -hmm. um, Germany, I think in the last cycle, was still have, maybe still had an increasing population. I, I don't know in, exactly, but didn't have much of a boom. 
it's got a falling population, but in the first half of the present cycle, um, German cities experienced some of the strongest uh, growth, at least in percentage terms, in, in Western world. So uh, it's there's not a quite a simple answer between the demographic issue and uh, and what happens in in the real estate market. Again, Japan is another one, falling population, older population, but at least uh, in the current cycle, they've had um, uh, appreciation in, in real estate assets in major cities. I was wondering about, you know, Mark, you said something when we were chatting about uh, China and the demographics that really struck me, which is that there's something, Is it, did you say it was three to one men to women or five to one men to women now? Mm, yeah, I think um, it's three to three men to every one woman, something like that. So, and so some, you know, some something having to do with central planning gone and Gone, having gone horribly. <laughs> the one child policy was a big backfire. <laughs> yes. And <clears throat> the multi hundreds of years um, history of this economic cycle occurring occurs in places where there's um, liberal financial policies, right? Laissez faire markets where mar you know, every market, even back to the even two or 300 years ago, was just organically growing. But now you have centrally planned economies, China being the biggest example where they've actually manipulated biology. You know, they've changed the game on the floor where you now have three men for every woman and just that just is going to be a hard thing to work out. Um, is, is it the case that the economic cycle you speak of requires a, an open market system, requires people to be free to do what they want to do and figure things out on their own? Um, I mean, I think there's, the virtually no country now is a pure market economy and these governments are quite large and they're quite interventionist everywhere. Um, you know, the Chinese have a property market. People buy and sell uh, housing. They use it as a store of value. Uh, actually, a lot of Asian countries, they have, you know, the how the dwelling is is, is basically a bank account um, and they can borrow money um, to, to do that. Uh, and prices are, and you think about, the ratio of prices relative to median earnings in the US and the UK is already ridiculously high levels when China has at least double that. So so they, they do have many of the same features in that respect that we do. I think probably to your point, um, the government in 2017 started interfering with the property market because there was a bit of a boom going on and, you know, all, the, all this building going on everywhere. And it was you know, the way that uh, their stimulus worked in, 20, in 2009, 2010 was that uh, local government sold off land and they built housing, they built bridges and ports and, and so on as massive capital investments. I mean, it, from a global economic point of view, it was good because the global economy could keep growing out of the last crisis. Um, so so they that was their sort of model. It kind of went over the top. You had a lot of stories about ghost cities and so on. The Chinese government in 2017 tried to do something about that, uh, and that put a lid on further price appreciation since then. Then the problem was that uh, a lot of these large developers, which are probably the largest real estate companies in the world because China is so massive and there's so much building going on, they borrowed uh, in dollar terms at ridiculously low rates. When the US government started putting rates up, it created a lot of issues for these developers, they could no longer roll over their loans and with the property markets are slow because of what the government was doing. It was it created a perfect storm. But then the government has now started intervening again. It's um, 
there is a i'm told a, a sh- not maybe not a shortage of inventory but there's very little inventory on the market so that will start to create it more of a more of a seller's market uh, can i means- ask can your can the 18 year cycle that you're heralding uh have different start points in different parts of the world it can it can and it did in the 19th century so it's a possibility, but I don't. I don't see China having had a major real estate crash um, over the last over the last uh, couple of years. And in fact, if you were to really sort of talk about Chinese real estate, you'd have to look at the period from about twenty seventeen. Um, so, that, I mean, that's my view. So, I suppose what I'm saying is that um, it is possible that China's on a different sort of rhythm. It might have an 18-year cycle, but it started at a different point. I'm not sure when it would be because, you know, 2008 and nine did affect China very significantly. Maybe more because it was exposed to the US because the US was the destination for a lot of Chinese exports and the US had a major recession. Um, the other thing is that it's quite hard to really understand what's going on in China because the government, well, firstly, data is hard to come by and often manipulated but also um you can't it's quite hard to see what is actually going on that might not have happened had the government not made some major central policy decision but i think and to go back to the analogy with stopping the tides my hunch is that uh there's a feeling that the chinese government is all powerful and can sort of start and stop things and can save things and you know, if it allows something to die, it can deal with the consequences. I think I get a sense that fundamentally, even though it doesn't look so smart over the last couple of years, fundamentally people believe that. Um, and that is firstly a perfect foundation for crazy speculative behavior when things do start to turn around. Uh, and the second thing is that when people have reason to question that assumption, uh, investors and capital heads for the exit at the same time very quickly and unfortunately not everyone gets out so uh and that that creates a really massive crisis of confidence so i i would say that um for the moment assume that china is on the same rhythm i wouldn't you know i'm i'm not particularly um i'm not particularly worried about what's going on in china at the moment um mm-hmm. and be wary about assumptions about uh how firstly how different China is, at least in terms of real estate speculation, but also how powerful the government is in terms of saving uh, saving the system when things go down. I think they will experience a pretty significant crisis as well. Yeah, and, and I would have to think that uh, we went through a period of increasing globalization for quite a while, and that that would slowly sync up the the cycles over time. And now, of course, we start to see a little bit of sh- a shift, at least here in the United States, of very uh, sort of isolationist type um, policies and things like that, where we might get a little bit out of sync um, if that's possible. And also, uh, you know, kind of taking the the stance that this is the tide, it's based on human biology, it's been going on forever, it almost seems that government bodies and policies can do very little uh, to manipulate it. They might be able to shorten a recession here or there, but they can't prevent it from happening in the first place. They might be able to mute a, a boom, but they can't stop it from happening in the first place. So it almost just seems just totally inevitable, like the the sun coming up and the sun going down. <laughs> I mean, I think the mistake that sometimes people make is that 
they see the government as somehow above right. the system and they kind of are pulling the strings and so on. I mean, the government is very much part of the system and they respond to incentives and politicians have biology too. That's getting reelected. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> so and, you know, the shortcut to that is to create some kind of economic boom and have everyone feeling wealthy, at least on paper and able to borrow yeah. money. They, they, mm. they, you know, banks fund their sort of campaigns and banks love to lend. The best thing to lend to is real estate. And so it's all, all the incentives work in the same way, regardless of what era it is. You know, yes, sometimes you do get uh, a policy that actually helps to maybe dampen the boom at the right time. Uh, and you, there's a window to do that. You know, it's far enough away from an election uh, so that that can happen. Other times, you know, for example, if, if um, uh, Donald Trump was re-elected next year being a real estate man, I'm sure there'll be a lot of policies to increase the intensity of of the final years of the cycle. So yes, they can, they do have some agency, but they do also make decisions based on incentives and usually the incentives are pointing in the same direction. Uh, on their own, yeah. So one last question. Uh, we spent a lot of time on real estate as a concept of property. Uh, there's also other types of property. Uh, I think it's Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution sets aside intellectual property and other types. Can you, and you mentioned this a little bit in the book, can you kind of talk about, uh, as we move to a close, that other types of property and how are they on a different cycle, same cycle, it goes in lockstep? Yeah, um, good question. So I'll try and be simple about this because it's it's not so straightforward. When I talk about land, um, I'm talking about anything sort of freely provided by rate nature. Um, so it can be sort of natural resources on things. So that's other elements of the cycle as well. And by the way, that includes things like bits of asteroid and the moon and orbital pathways around the Earth for satellites. And, and so on. all of these things are scarce. They're location based uh, and uh, can be collateral for lending and other things and for trading on markets. Um, the other the other sort of category of activity is um, where the government creates artificial scarcity through the licensing system. And that's, I think, what you're referring to. So intellectual yeah. property, um, banking licenses and other things. And because of that scarcity, they create sort of very, especially during a boom, they go up in value very significantly. Um and actually they contribute to it and to a certain extent may even at some point as we become increasingly digitally enabled society become more important than physical real estate. So real estate in the metaverse and, you know, all the sort of bits of licensing that you need uh, to make that work. Mm -hmm. Do you mind if I, I know Mark said that was the last question. Can I ask you for a brief answer to how will we know when the end is near? <laughs> um, there are there are a few markers in the book uh, of things that are you know going over when things are going over the top. So this is you know before the end, um, and some of the things that your listeners will come across is very easy to get money out of your bank manager. In fact, they'll be phoning you up saying, "Do you want to add a bit more to that loan, etc." Uh, you'll be talking about some kind of investment activity with your hairdresser so maybe not when you go <laughs> but in, in a couple of years time they'll be saying oh, I, i'm thinking about ditching this hairdressing gig and i want to you know be investing in the metaverse where i've heard that this is a good idea or whatever 
The other thing is there'll be a series of announcements about the world's tallest buildings. And the reason for that being so clear is, is set out in the book. Uh, there'll be a lot of uh, activities um, for cele of celebrities that are catching everyone's attention. And it's kind of very lavish and it's very hedonistic. Uh, and the size of several very popular, usually women's magazines uh, and also male, you know, G GQ and so on. Uh, will be thicker than ever because they're stuffed full of adverts. That is a very good shopping list that for is, the end of yeah. times. <laughs> <laughs> On that note. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so many opportunities yeah. there. So, I mean, even so Mark many. and I have talked about in our own personal business lives how we were trying to factor in some of your research into some of our strategic planning and thinking. So, mm -hmm. um Akil, thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us from London. And thank you for joining us at Oxford a couple of months ago. And just for always being available to share your, your very interesting, very um, unique perspective with, with folks that we bring together. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Well, I, what I love about talking to Akil is that there's a, a formula and now you are faced with the question is, you know, you don't have to buy into it lock, stock and barrel, although you can, you, you can certainly pay attention to it or you can deny it. You have choices to make. For sure. And, and when I was reading the book, the, the secret wealth advantage, uh, it was just overall really fascinating. And you're always thinking about, well, how do I, as an entrepreneur, and I hope everyone listening to this is just thinking, how do I tip the scales in my favor, given the tides always come and they always go uh, exactly when. Okay. Uh, but they do always come and they do always go uh, at what frequency. And so how do you take advantage of that? And I think Akil gives really great uh, thinking tools inside of the book to say, okay, well, how do I prepare for those lean times when they come? How do I take advantage of those lean times when they are here? so that I can then take advantage of the, the boom times that, that certainly follow that. Uh, so I just totally recommend the, the book and whether you buy into the 18 uh, year cycle, 18, 20 year cycle or not, you're gonna come out a little bit more educated. You're gonna come out a little bit more prepared for the future. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, one of the things that this is like my version of wisdom in my life has been that the first time I lived through an economic um, uncertainty, which was around 2001, I lived in New York City. We had 9-11. I was, you know, I was in my career, like I was fully ensconced in my career. And it seemed like the end of the world. And then it came back. And then 2003 and then 2009. By 2009, even as bad as it was, I realized that these things actually do come to an end. I finally figured that part out. And that was wisdom. So I, that was the beginning of my saying, hey, wisdom might be one of the reasons why I start to add value to the world is I actually know things that I didn't know before. Mm -hmm. um, and this kind of insight allows you to be very strategic about wisdom, about your wisdom. Absolutely. And people are just not in tune with economic history or economics in general. And Akil's mentioning incentives and people are behaving according to these incentives. I think it's just a really important skill for every entrepreneur to have. Yeah, and you did and you did a great job, Mark, of just kind of relating to biology. Biology leads to land and land or things that come from nature. Um, and that, that's as long as we're all here, that's never gonna change. I, I don't think it will. I don't think it will. Yeah. 
unless maybe AI um, is running the world, in which case all bets are off. <laughs> well, and that's <laughs> probably going to happen by 2026. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be <laughs> war right, and mayhem. <laughs> yep. Well, on to next. Yeah. Thanks, Lewis. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening to another episode of What I See, where we explore the stories of the visionaries shaping our world. We hope you found insights and inspiration from our guests. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode and continue to be a part of the conversation. See you next time on What I See.